Well, in November 2012, in the town of Newcastle in England, uh, 530 runners uh, lined up to run a 10-kilometer race, the annual uh, 10-kilometer in Newcastle. And as usual, there were dozens and dozens of runners uh, spread out in different groups, and there were many from out of town as well. And so what they did is, very traditionally, is you have a, a guy on a bicycle riding ahead to show people the route, and that person is called the rabbit. And the rabbit rides ahead to steer the, the course of the runners, and he, of course, to be very practical, will wear a luminous fluorescent yellow jersey, cycling jersey. And so this is exactly what happened, just as usual. Uh, this was customary and it was functional. But shortly after the rabbit um, jetted off and a small pack of runners were keeping up with him and pulling ahead of the others, they crested a blind rise. And at that point, a local cyclist who was driving through town and just perchance on that day happened to be wearing a luminous yellow fluorescent cycling jersey cut across the route. And so the front runners and the real rabbit were on the other side of the blind rise, and so the rest of the race just kind of followed this rabbit. And he was just out for a ride, so they ran around Newcastle in a meandering, random route. And then, just again, serendipitously, this cyclist happened to cross the route again in the real place and disappear, and, and so they were back on track. Uh, only the front runners, who were really taking this seriously and been training all year for it and had pulled away from all of them, were now behind the rest of the pack. And so at great speed, they started approaching the stragglers, and there was tremendous confusion, and eventually nobody knew where they were, what was going on, who was winning, who was losing, and they had to call the whole race off, have everyone walk back, and start all over again. How would you feel after you'd been sprinting for a few kilometers, realized you were coming last suddenly, and had to do that all over again? Well, uh, the people reacted pretty well. Apparently, there was just a, a lot of laughing about it, and it kind of made the news, and everyone thought it was funny, and that's okay, because there wasn't much at stake. But I fear for many Christians who are, in a sense, living their lives chasing the wrong rabbit, where they think that they're pleasing the Lord and they're doing what God wants, and, and perhaps they are at a certain pace, and they feel that there's not much at stake, and they may be quite confused and bewildered on Judgment Day to find out that all along they were just chasing the wrong rabbit, that their easy route wasn't the right route, and that now others are being rewarded and they are forfeiting their reward, chasing the wrong rabbit. With that in mind, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 to make sure that we don't fall into that error ourselves. First Peter chapter 1. You'll remember in the context of Peter writing to these Christians that have been scattered abroad through persecution, he's encouraging them primarily to keep their focus on their future salvation. He then turned the corner and gave some practical advice calling us to live in a certain way, to, to um, pay attention to our conduct and be holy. And he explained to us that because of your new nature, as someone who's been born again, and because of your new father, that you are no longer walking according to the, the course of this world or the prince of the power of the air, but now that you are a child of God, because of that, you have his nature, and his nature is one of holiness. 
be holy for I am holy. And so now that we've been born again, we are children of obedience, not children of disobedience and wrath. And that's where we find ourselves now. So let me pick it up again in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And those last couple of verses are really important, and we'll get to them, but for now, we're going to focus on verse 17. Verse 17, and we're going to answer three questions, three frequently asked questions about eternal rewards and how we as Christians are rewarded in the afterlife so that you can give glory to God in the way that you believe His promises. Once you understand the promises in Scripture of eternal reward, you really can live your whole life differently and show your faith in Him. So these are the three frequently asked questions. Are Christians immune from all judgment? Another question, on what is the judgment based? And then finally, how should we then live? Once we know if we're immune to all judgment and what the judgment is based on, then how do we live? Those are the three questions we're going to answer this morning. And as you know, this is a topic that's very dear to my heart. This is what I did a, a thesis on, and this is what I did my doctoral work on, and my first book came out on this concept of eternal rewards. And I can promise you that once you understand it and see it in Scripture, it will change your life. If you have not seen this before, I mean, if you've been here a while, you've heard me, this is like my little pet thing that comes out, but it's in the text today, so it's there, and we're going to hit it. So the first question, are Christians immune from all judgment? Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And that phrase, if you call on him as father, um, you could translate that since you call on him as father. You know, if you call on him as father and you do, from the context we know, Peter is writing to Christians. These are true believers that have been scattered. They are the ones that are partaking in the nature of God. You have a new father. And he says, now because of that, since he is your new father and you have his new nature and the nature of holiness, and if you call him father, which you do, then you as a Christian conduct yourselves with fear in the time of your exile, the time of your time here on earth. Now, one of the greatest comforts in life for Christians is that we don't fear any condemnation from God. That is one of the greatest comforts that you can have, that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how bad it gets, you know that you are saved from the wrath of God because of the work that Jesus Christ did in his life and in his death on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. And that is a once and for all event that happened in history that has purchased your forgiveness. And that forgiveness is applied to anyone 
and everyone who places their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And once you have that, your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you can rejoice in that for the rest of your life. And that is really the greatest comfort, and we sing about it all the time in our church. Uh, We sing about it, we read about it, we encourage one another. Your sins are forgiven because of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't answer the question, are Christians immune from all judgment? Any consequence from God because of our sin? Now we know from Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. We know from Ephesians 2.10, for by grace, the free gift, you have been saved, done and dusted. It is not your own doing, not a result of works that no one should boast. It's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So these are the, the wonderful truths that your salvation is secure. It's not because of your doing. It's because of the doing of Christ. There's no condemnation. So then how come Peter says in verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, meaning without favoritism, according to each one's deeds, Because of that, you need to conduct yourselves with fear in this world. So the question, you could be framed this way. Precisely what did the atonement of Jesus Christ cover? When Jesus died on the cross and he removed all condemnation from us, what does that cover and what doesn't it cover? You've heard of the concept of diplomatic immunity. Right? If you are a, an official diplomat from another country and uh, you've come here for a United Nations meeting or whatever in New York City, there are certain things that you are immune from. So you are immune from being detained by local law enforcement, for example. Um, you are immune from being subpoenaed to uh, appear in a trial and, and testify in a trial. There are certain crimes even that if you commit those crimes and they're not a crime in your own country, you have to be tried in your own country for those and you you cannot be held accountable for them here. But even diplomats, believe it or not, have to pay parking tickets. This is a big thing if you ever Google this. It's a huge controversy because diplomats in New York City park wherever they want to because parking is so hard to find and they mass up these, these parking tickets and... America makes them pay, and they should because your immunity doesn't cover the parking tickets. In the same way, if you as a Christian get a parking ticket, you do not get to write in to say, well, I'm a Christian and all my sins are forgiven, so this parking ticket is covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, you could try that. It's not going to work. If you speed, you will get a fine. If you drive drunk, you will be arrested. If you commit a crime, you will go to jail. And at no point can you say, I don't understand. I know that was a sin, but my sins are forgiven. There's no consequence. There's no judgment. Where does it say that in the Bible? Oh, you just read it in Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, yes, condemnation is covered by the atonement of Christ. Condemnation is the wrath of God 
poured upon unbelievers forever and ever because of their rebellion against him. And since you are no longer in rebellion against him and you're not an unbeliever and all of that wrath which you deserved when you were an unbeliever has been paid for and absorbed by Jesus Christ and wiped clean, you will never suffer punishment in hell for your sins. But you still have to pay your library fine and go to jail if you commit a crime. So we understand that there is such a thing as judgment in this life even for Christians that we are not immune from. Verse 17 says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially. It's not like there's favoritism here. Well, you're a Christian, so I'm going to treat you differently in this life. You know, if an unbeliever commits a crime, he'll go to jail. But if a Christian commits a crime, I'm just going to make sure that you're just like under house arrest because you're one of mine. And Peter's saying, no, when God judges you according to your deeds in this life, he's impartial. Um, we... At the high school I went to, our, the principal of our high school once called a full detention of the whole school because during assembly, the whole school was kind of being rowdy. Now, I wasn't, but um, as I remember the story, I wasn't. But, uh, and I'm sure there were a few people that weren't, but he called a school-wide detention. And so during recess, the whole school had to come in and we had to practice lining up quietly and sitting and then lining, going out for the full 15 minutes of our recess in dead silence, and if we didn't do it perfectly, he was going to give us detention again the next day. Now, what if he had said, that detention is for everybody except my daughter, because she was sitting in the front row, and I saw she was being quiet, and she's my daughter. And that might have been true, that she was being quiet and obedient, but is she now exempt from the detention of the whole school? Of course not. That would be called showing partiality. It's unfair. In the same way, it's unfair if a Christian is speeding and doesn't get a ticket, but a non-Christian speeds and gets a ticket. That's unfair. That's not how God works. Well, why is it fair that our sins are forgiven in eternity? Well, because someone paid for them. So there is a type of judgment in this life from which we are not exempt, and we're going to call that temporal discipline. There's actually two types. One is temporal discipline. Let me just give you a verse. It's not just our experience that shows us that we have to pay our fines. Um, Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. That means in this life. He disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 and following, the writer of Hebrews is actually saying that if you get away with your sins in this life and they're never exposed and there's no consequence, that's actually a reason to be concerned. Because God loves his children and he disciplines his children. And so if you're not being disciplined, maybe you're not his children. So what is that discipline talking about? It's not talking about wrath of God in the afterlife. We know there's no condemnation. That's talking about in this life. 
And let me tell you, as, as somebody who's now been a pastor for going on 19 years, I can tell you from experience that Christians who sin secretly, their sin finds them out. Christians will do things that they think no one will ever find out. And it is amazing the stories and the way God uses his providence to expose those sins. Because he loves them. And he's dealing with them. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30, Paul said, anyone who eats and drinks um, communion, the, you know, the Lord's Supper, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul said in the Corinthian church, there were people that God was striking with disease because they were taking communion in an unworthy manner. That's why whenever we do communion, we do communion once a month on the first Sunday of the month, and we, we tell you, you need to prepare. You need to confess any sins, repent of any sins. Don't be in an ongoing pattern of taking communion as if everything's fine with your secret sin that you're hiding because there is judgment even in this life for that. Okay, so that's the one type of judgment that, that we're not immune from. The second type is the loss of eternal reward. Now, for this, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 3. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3. The context of this chapter in, in, um, in Peter's writing is one of our eternal security. So I think that this is what he's talking about here, is that your, your salvation is secure, but there's this other issue, this other judgment in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul talks about it too. Yeah, it's about to get bad. Um, verse, this, is, this can be scary, but don't worry. You've got to stick with me to the end. You've got to stick with me to the end. We'll, we'll wrap it up. But in verse 10, he says this. Um, according to the grace, uh, well, let me pick it up in verse 9. He's using a metaphor of uh, a, a team of people building something. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day, meaning the day of judgment, will disclose it, will make it known. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is a really interesting passage where Paul's talking about the metaphor. The metaphor is that I'm, I built a foundation by preaching the gospel to you. Now another pastor comes and he builds another foundation. You know, he's building on top of that. And all Christians are building on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, as we're teaching and discipling and all those things. And your whole life is a ministry. And your life is building on the foundation that's laid of Jesus Christ. But he says, obviously, when you build, you build with different uh, building materials. And so he says, 
in his metaphor, he says, imagine you have this building and a fire comes through and burns it. What's going to burn up? Well, the wood's going to burn up and the straw is going to burn up and the stubble's going to burn up. You know, if you've got a thatched roof, the roof's going to burn. If you've got wooden pillars, the wooden pillars are going to burn. What's going to stay behind? Well, the stuff that's made out of metal, in this case, the gold and the silver and the precious stones, uh, they're, they're still going to be there after the fire. So in the metaphor, the building is your life. The fire is this day of judgment, the day that discloses your work. And the things that you built your life on that, that had weight, that had gravitas, that was significant, those things last for all eternity. And then there's other stuff that you do that just burns up, and that's okay because your life's made up of those things, but th those are the things that don't have eternal value. So, just for example, can you think of something that you could do even today that would have an effect that echoes for eternity? Well, sharing the gospel with someone, for example. Teaching Sunday school to the kids. <laughs> sharing the word of God, leading someone to the Lord, ministering to the needs of the saints, contributing to the work of the ministry. You know, these are things that are going to last for, forever because the only thing that lasts forever are our souls. And so as people get saved and they mature in Christ and the gospel goes out, any contribution you make to missionaries, any work that you do to help the kingdom of God, these are things that last for eternity. Then there's other stuff, you know, I don't know, watching football. Um, brushing your teeth, mowing the lawn. I mean, these things, you know, you mow your lawn, it's got an effect. It's got a great effect for about two weeks, and then you've got to mow it again, right? You brush your teeth, you've got to brush it very shortly again, right? So there's some things that they just don't have this long-term impact, and that's okay. But imagine your life was made entirely of the stuff that has no impact. Everything you ever did was just temporal, Compared to a person who a large part of their life is spent sacrificing the things that they want to do so that they can do the things they know have an impact for eternity. And Paul says, on the day, when the day discloses your work, because we can't tell each other's work, we don't know our motives and all those things, but on the day that the work is disclosed, some people will get reward and other people will, what's the exact word that he uses? Suffer loss. Some people will suffer loss. So, what does suffer loss mean? Well, one um, brilliant quote that I found in doing my research is, you know, there's a lot of debate about what it means to suffer loss. But the one thing it can't mean is to not suffer loss, right? So, without getting into any specifics, it can't possibly be true that when you die and you have not built a life with gold, silver, and precious stones, but only with wood, hay, and stubble, it is not true that on the day of judgment you will suffer no loss. Because the Bible says you will suffer loss. So what do we do with this? You might be asking at this point, but I thought you said my sins were paid for in hell, just remember, we're not talking about any kind of punishment for any kind of sins. It's all paid for by Christ. You're not being punished on judgment day as a believer. You are being paid. The word mythos there is wages. It's reward. You will get a reward. If, if your work 
If your work survives the test that it was done for eternity, you will get a reward for that work. And if, if it wasn't for eternity, you will suffer loss. Loss of what? Loss of that potential reward that you could have got. Not loss of your salvation, of course, but loss of the potential reward. So just imagine um, a lazy salesman gets commission uh, based on how many sales he makes, and then there's a diligent salesman, and he gets commission based on how many sales he or she makes, and then at the end of the year, one of them gets this, everyone gets a salary, they get the same base salary, but the diligent salesperson who's been working hard the whole year gets a, a bonus check of all the commission, and it's 10 times as much as the lazy salesman. Now, is that fair or unfair? That's fair. Everyone's getting their salary. It's not like your salary gets docked, but you, you had the ability to earn more or earn less based on what you wanted to do with your time. And the lazy salesman's like, I'm happy with my salary. I just want my salary. I might make a sale here or two if it's convenient. The other one says, I want my salary, but I want way more, so I'm going to work super hard. And all that happens on payday is that that work is rewarded and the other laziness suffers loss of potential reward. And it's the same on Judgment Day for believers. Now remember, and we'll, I'll get to this in a bit more detail, uh, the Bema seat is the judgment for believers. And the Bema seat judgment, there's no unbelievers present. It is a judgment mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. We will all stand before the Bema seat of Christ. I'll give you that verse again later. We're going to look at it. But um, it's a reward ceremony. And so you get your rewards. And the person who gets the bronze medal well, they still get something. They just didn't get the gold medal, right? Um, and so that's what that reward ceremony is. And that's what it means to suffer loss. Not loss of your salvation, just loss of what you could have had if you had lived your life differently. Now, you might say, well, what are the rewards we're going to get? That's a whole other sermon. We could just buy the preacher's payday. Um, but I'll just give you a few verses if you want to look them up. Revelation 20, verse 6, talks about rewards being reigning with Christ. It's Revelation 20, verse 6. Um, or ruling over cities is one of the ways it's described as a metaphor in uh, Luke 19, verse 6. Or in Revelation 20, verse 4, authority to judge or to govern. In Luke 22, verse 30, sitting on thrones, which is a place of governance. And you see what all these have in common? <laughs> and authority. Uh, even 2 Timothy 4, 8, <clears throat> it refers to being given crowns. We talk about our rewards being crowns. Well, what is a crown a sign of? Authority. Um, a right to rule or reign or govern. So all of these, reigning with Christ, ruling over cities, authority to judge, sitting on thrones, and being given crowns. <clears throat> so the rewards you get are positions of authority in the kingdom. So that's our first question. Are Christians immune to all judgment? And if somebody just asked you that today, you would say, no, we're immune to all condemnation. We still have to deal with the things in this life that we do. Speeding fines and whatever consequences. You gossip about someone, you're going to ruin a relationship. The sin is covered, but it still has a consequence. Okay. And then the second thing is eternal reward. The decisions you make on what you do with your time and your money and your talents and your gifts is going to affect your eternity. So the second question that's frequently asked is, well, on what is this judgment then based? 
How do I, how do I lay up for myself treasures in heaven? Look again at verse 17. Go back to First Peter. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds. So your judgment of your salvation is judged entirely according to Christ's deeds. But your judgment for your eternal rewards is according to each one's deeds. So what you do, your life will be judged. Matthew 12, 36, for example, Jesus says, I tell you, on that day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That includes Christians. You will have to give an account for your careless words, every word that you tweet, I mean speak, every word that you post on Facebook, every comment that you make on someone else's post. Every snide remark, every careless word. So that, that's going to keep us busy. In Luke chapter, uh, oh, sorry, let me also just read uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. So your words get judged. Um, the other thing that gets judged is your motives. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, um, Paul says, on other believers. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. That's a motive. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5 and following, that's also talking about con, uh, commendation from God to his believers. And at that time, the secret stuff will be exposed if it hadn't been exposed already. So don't you worry about judging another person. Well, I saw you at the grocery store and I saw you buying a bottle of wine. That means you're a drunkard. Well, it is possible to drink wine without getting drunk if you have just a little on a full stomach. Well, but, 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 but I know your heart. You went home and just downed that whole bottle. Well, you don't know that about that other person. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. You know who knows? God knows. And that's another believer. Don't go past judgment on another believer before the time because only God knows their motives. And on judgment day, those motives will be exposed and reckoned with. Now, that's different if you see somebody actually sinning and doing something wrong. Well, I saw you get drunk. Okay, well, let's deal with that. But don't judge someone's motives because only God knows their motives. If you're taking notes, you can just write down uh, Matthew 9, uh, Luke, Luke 19, verse 13 to about 26 is the parable of the minas. It's uh, or minas. Parable of the coins. Um, not the talents, which is Matthew 25, but in the parable of the coins... Uh, the, they each get given the same amount, but they make different amounts, and then they are rewarded based on how much they made. So they each get one coin, one person makes ten, and he gets rulership over ten cities. The other servant makes five. From his investment, he gets rulership over five cities. And then the last one, he puts his in a handkerchief and gives it back and says, oh, I didn't invest it, but at least I didn't lose it. And he doesn't get a well-done, good and faithful servant. He gets rebuked because he put it in the mina. And the Lord says, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. If you don't use what you're given, 
there'll be a forfeiture of reward. And if you use what you're given, you'll be rewarded according to how, how much you used it. So there's like degrees of reward in that par parable. Now, you know people in all three of those categories, the 10-city category, the 5-city category, and the handkerchief category. You know people that have given up careers and family and lands for the sake of the gospel and have moved overseas and had to learn a foreign language and raise their kids in a foreign culture so they can translate the Bible, so that they can share the gospel. Why are they doing that? They're not doing that for the money. They're not doing it because it's a step up in life. They're not doing that because it's good for their family and their kids. They're doing that for eternal reward. You know people like that. Usually they're overseas <laughs> doing stuff. You also know people in the five category, the five city category. And by the way, the, the 10 city category might just be uh, somebody who's here being as faithful as they can with what they've been given. A stay-at-home mom who's given up a lucrative career so that she can raise her kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Or a, a faithful wife who's been dragged by her husband to some place here or there, but she does so joyfully and faithfully to, to, to support him because that's her calling, and she does that to the best of her ability. And so whatever your intellect is or your training or, or your health or whatever it is, as long as you're doing what you can do with what you've been given, you get reward. You get the five-city Christians, the ones who, you know, they're not going to give up everything in their lives, but they're going to they're do what they can with what they have, and they might show up early, and they're serving in their nursery, and they're, you know, they show up to help with things, and they contribute to the needs, and they visit people, and they, they're the ones that, you know, clean up the mess that other people make, and it's just kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that people are doing the best with what they can do, and, and hopefully most of us are striving to at least be in that category, but then you know people in the handkerchief category, don't you? These are people that they can barely drag themselves to church on a Sunday. They are so distracted by their hobbies and their sport and their career and their social life or whatever it is that they can't, they can't even gather to worship the Lord. They're not going to give of their hard-earned money some missionary they've never met. They're, they're doing the bare minimum, the couch potatoes of the kingdom. They show up on Sunday. Well, they're not going to come early because they'd have to wake up early to do that and actually help with something. They're not going to put their name on a roster. They're not going to serve. They might not pursue membership because I don't want to be a member because then they might actually ask me to do something. But I am saved. I love the Lord Jesus. And let me just be clear. There are Christians who are actually saved who are like that. And so they don't lose their salvation on Judgment Day. But they didn't do what they could have with what they had been given. And do you think it's fair that they end up with the exact same reward as somebody who gives up family and lands for my name's sake? As Jesus says, absolutely not. They will get what they deserve. They will get paid. And they'll be happy with their payment because it's more than they deserve anyway but they will know that someone else got 10 times as much. And that's what Paul calls suffering loss. Final question. How should we then live? 
how should we then live? If this is true, if, if we're not immune from all judgment and there is judgment and it's based on how we live our lives, then how should we live? Well, verse 17 says, you know, uh, the father who judges impartially according to each one's needs, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Remember, early, we dealt with this in an earlier sermon when um, Peter talks about exile. He, he's using this as a, they were, they were, physically and geographically exiled from their homes, but he uses it as a metaphor for being here on earth as opposed to being at home in heaven. So on, in your time of your sojourn, of your, um, your, your travels, your exile, where you're away from heaven, in this life, in other words, how should you live your lives? Conduct yourselves with fear. Yes, that word means fear in the Greek. For baomai, for baomai, where we get the word phobia from. Now you can turn to Second Corinthians chapter five. I said we would get there, and I'm going to teach you one really cool Greek word. It's the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. Um, this is the passage that I did my doctoral work on, and so I would I would come home excitedly and tell Kim about this, and I, I wish I hadn't, because she uses it now against me. I taught her this word in Greek, and she still uses it. Um, it's the word faulon. Faulon. Um, and it's found here in verse, well, we'll get there. Let me read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We'd rather be dead with, with Jesus. So whether we are at home or away, you know, alive or dead, we make it our aim to please him. For, this is why we want to please Jesus while we're here. For, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We Christians must all appear before the bema seat of Christ, okay? So that each one may receive what is due, there's your payment, your reward, for what he has done in the body, there's the deeds that you did, same as what Peter's saying, whether good or foul on. Now, your version might say evil there, and evil is a translation of it, but phalon is such a rich concept, it's only used here. Um, usually the word for evil is porneia, you know, like pornography, that kind of evil, or kakos, which just sounds evil. Um, but here he uses a unique word, phalon, which actually means light, as opposed to weighty. It means light. So if you put something on a scale and it's got no worth, it's just worthless, it's phalon. It's bad. So I don't, I actually crossed out the word evil and just wrote foul on there, but um, because evil makes it sound like there's sins involved again. You know, it makes it sound like each one of us will receive what's due, whether he's done in the body, whether good or sinful. And that's, sins are on part of the equation because sins have been paid for by Christ. But you will be paid according to what you did in this life based on what was, what had weight and value for eternity and what was light and worthless for eternity. So it's the same thing Peter said, and it's the same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3. And it's the same thing as the parable of the, the handkerchief uh, Christian. And I, I may have told you this before, like one of the most convicting possessions I have is I own, I haven't watched it in many years, but I own the DVD set for the entire series of 24. Remember that Jack Bauer, 24, was big. 
back in the early 2000s, shot in real time, stayed in California where we were living, so it was like really cool to watch it. And I don't remember much about it, but each one is shot, each episode is shot in real time. So seven, um, well, 24 episodes is 24 hours. That was the season. And there were seven seasons. And I watched them all. And so you could probably do this with any television series you've watched, but this is the most vivid because it's seven weeks, 24 hours a day of TV watching that I have accomplished. Uh, seven days, seven days, not seven weeks. Well, I watched some of them more than once, but anyway. So a whole week of my life, let's at least say that. A whole week of my life, I know for certain I've spent watching TV, and of course it's more than that, but, but just to see it on the shelf. That week, guess what the Bible calls that week of my life? Foul on. And so sometimes, sometimes Kim will see me doing something, like whatever it is, wanting to play video games or something, you foul on. You can't enjoy anything when it's foul on, but, but it's true. It's true. So it's not sinful to watch television or watch sport or, or do these things or go for a hike or, or whatever. And some of these things you have to do. And you need to go to gym and stay healthy. You need to mow your lawn and you need to, yeah, whatever. And you need to relax and you need to have recreation in your life. But Why? so that you can be fresh and equipped and ready to do things that last for eternity. And so God wants you to rest, and he wants you to sleep in every once in a while, and he wants you to be entertained once in a while and be amused once in a while and kind of switch your brain off once in a while. Why? So that you, for the rest of the time, can be alert and ready and, and geared up to do things that last for eternity. Now, if you spend your entire life only doing the things that are relaxing and comfortable and foul on, you don't lose your salvation. Of course not. Jesus paid for that. But you're going to feel it on Judgment Day. And Paul calls it suffering loss. Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s made this resolution, resolution number 22. It's one of his famous 70 resolutions. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Unquote. He resolved to use every moment of every day to amass eternal reward. He used to wake up at 4.30 in the morning. Why? Just because he could. He would wake up early and he would pray and he would study the word and he would write sermons and he would write books because he wanted to use that for eternity. Now you're going to compare that to somebody who can barely drag themselves to church three times a month to be the couch potato? Of course he's going to get more reward. And we'll be happy for him. Now again, just a footnote. Not all sport is bad. Not all time off and leisure is bad. God wants you refreshed. But man, some people just miss the point of all of that. And they make their entire lives, they're willing to give up things that are of eternal value in order to free up time to do the foul on better. Oh, we're going to feel so stupid on judgment day. And you're going to kick yourself and think, man, if I just spent a little bit more time on the things that I knew was more important, 
I would have an effect that now lasts for 10,000 millennia and beyond. Jesus said, if you're faithful with little, I will entrust you with much. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus said, be rich toward God. Jesus said, he who gives up land and family for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. Peter said, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Do you believe that? Maybe before you heard the sermon, you were less accountable. Sorry about that. <laughs> but now you know. And the reason I want you to know this, the reason Peter wants us to know this, is because he doesn't want us chasing the wrong rabbit. And you might be going along your Christian walk thinking, this is pretty easy. And there's other people that are taking the harder route. But who gets the medal? And in the race, they just had to reset and they had to start over. But in, on Judgment Day, there's no second chances. You run the way you run and you get the reward that you get and it lasts for eternity. And you can make a difference to that eternity today. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your spare time. Don't waste your health, your money, your education, your talents the resources God has given you. Don't waste your retirement. There's no second chances. Don't follow the wrong rabbit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this very sobering and convicting message, and yet it is also so inspiring to know that we can live lives that bring you glory by believing your promises, that there is eternal reward for all of the sacrifice that people make. I think of all the the people in this church that over the years have sacrificed so much of their, their time and their money and their effort and their pursuits and their comfort for your glory. And we know that you keep track of those things and you will reward them richly. I pray, Father, that you would make us a people that believe in an afterlife, that we would set our hearts on heaven, that you would make us people that live today knowing that it affects eternity. But we especially want to thank you that we have no fear of losing our salvation. Because if our salvation were up to us, we could not keep it. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for living and for dying for us and for giving us so much more than we will ever deserve. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.